Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on the podcast, 2019 election fallout. The big winners, the big losers. Where do we go from here? And hard to believe it has been five years since we lost Corporal Nathan Cirillo killed while on duty standing guard at the National War Memorial by a lone gunman. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Kind of feels like the day after an election. Who won? Who lost? Is it a minority? Majority? Is it? All right, uh, now we got that out of the way. Uh, Alan Carter is with us, host of Focus Ontario, global news anchor. He is with us now. Alan, have you been to bed yet, or uh, are you just are you just punch drunk now? When I die, you know, sleep is overrated. I don't need any of that. There's politics, man. That's it. That's it. So, uh, considering the bloc's dominance in Quebec and uh, eating a lot of the liberal seats up, how much of a factor was Ontario in this election, and specifically the Doug Ford factor? Well, Ontario was everything. Again, it's a, it's sort of a return to, you know, the Chrétien years where, you know, Ontario basically elects the government uh, and the West sees with uh, with rage about it and, and thinks that we're all idiots out here for uh, once again going liberal. And it really was the it was it was the 416 and the 905. I mean, take a look at it. It's all red. It's all pretty much, you know, there's no, the NDP did not pick up any seats. In Toronto, and you know, I've been talking about this over the last couple of days, probably since about Thursday of last week. I think when started to sense a bit of a movement, and 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 I think a lot of it was motivated by people who are not uh, people who were were thinking to themselves, "Well, I don't know if I I want a conservative government, so therefore I'm going to go liberal." Should he have perhaps been more visible and come out and faced uh, faced all the the people who were negative against him rather than hiding? No, no, I think he did exactly the right thing, and I think that in many ways the winner that comes out of this is Doug Ford, really, because he showed some discipline that I think the electorate didn't think he had. Uh, he remained quiet. Uh, look at the uh, the conciliatory tone of the congratulatory note he put out today. It was very much, I'm going to work going forward. There was no bombast. There was no partisanship. There was no mention of a carbon tax or stickers or a buck of beer or any of that stuff. And I think that, you know, in many ways, Mr. Ford is kind of the winner here because Mr. Scheer did not get to the finish line. So people can say, well, maybe Mr. Ford should have been out. But the fact of the matter is, had he been out campaigning, he would have been a lightning rod, and it would have sucked up even more oxygen. And, you know, I don't know if it would have been any better for the Conservatives. Uh, Justin Ford, or sorry, Justin Trudeau, obviously a little more humble today. Will Doug Ford's attitude change here? Because obviously he's been silent for uh, many weeks here. Is he going to come out and just start lambasting the prime minister, or is he going to use this as an opportunity to change even his own fortune? Well, I, I think that I, I think he'll see Mr. Ford uh, very much pays very much attention to well, one thing: talk radio. Uh, he pays attention to what people are saying. He was deeply hurt by the booing uh, at the Raptors uh, victory parade. He, you know, I think his people saw this sort of snowballing effect of, 
you know, every time you see Doug Ford, you boo, and that makes news. And so they realized that they had a problem on their hands, and that is you got to get your guy out of the limelight. you got to let something else happen to turn the page. And I think they've been effective at that. And I will contrast that with Kathleen Wynne and her last 18 months in government, when she could have very much have benefited from just shutting up and getting out of our grill. And instead, she was just constantly doing another announcement and taking more questions. And people really got agitated and angry about that. And I think we have a new discipline within the premier's office. Remember, we've got a new chief of staff in there now, hmm. uh, very much an experienced operator, Jamie Wallace. And I think that they have said, you know what, it, it is better for us. It is better for us long term when we look at the prospect of trying to be reelected in this province that we keep quiet and we keep our guy out of the public view. Hmm. All right. What about the uh, from a federal standpoint, the leadership of all of these parties? Everybody secure? No, I think Andrew Shear's in deep, deep trouble. Um, I, you know, there, the difficulty here is under a minority situation, does any party want to change jockeys? Because, you know, there's an unstable uh, parliament. It could fall. But I think the, the conservatives are going to start looking and thinking, well, wait a minute, if we can't win last, if we can't win this time against Trudeau, you know, how, why do we think that another... Trudeau versus um, Scheer is going to go our way. And I, I don't know if there's a lot of evidence of that. I mean, I don't know who it is that they can go to, but I think there will be some agitation, and I think it'll be tough for Mr. Scheer to hang on. I'm not saying he can't. I think, though, that he has the toughest road ahead. Alan Carter has been with us, host of Focus Ontario and Global News Anchor. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. Alan, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. Let's bring in David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent, Global News. A uh, long night for all of these people. David, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, no problem. Uh, it, it, the night, I got all of two and a half hours sleep right now. So I can lots just, of coffee is in the I can imagine. I can. I know. We're listening to you and uh, Alan Carter off air, and it sounds like you're a little punch drunk, but that's totally understandable. Mm-hmm. Great job last night, by the way. Um, obviously, you followed a few of these campaigns in your time. With this one being as divisive it is from start to finish, are you surprised by the outcome at all? Um, I guess there's a, there's a few surprises, I suppose. I am surprised at the strength the Liberals showed in Ontario. And uh, that is, in my view, the Ford fear factor. There you go. Is that, a, is, that, is that the Doug Ford factor? Should he have stayed in hibernation or come out during well, this he campaign? He did stay in hibernation. I mean, absolutely. He did. I mean, there was no sheer Ford. Uh, I mean, they, they avoided each other like the plague. And yet the Trudeau Liberals, all through the, the final days, were talking about, you know, Doug Ford equals cuts. Doug Ford equals Andrew Scheer. Therefore, Scheer equals cuts. And, you know, we had our polling partner, Ipsos, uh, in the field doing exit polls yesterday. And among the many interesting results out of those exit polls was 57% of Ontario voters went into the ballot box with Doug Ford on their mind. Mm. And that's the last thing Andrew Scheer wanted, and it showed. In fact, we're still crunching, you know, final numbers and all that sort of thing. But... Um, the Trudeau Liberals, they did at least as well in Ontario in 2015, and they may have even done a bit better, believe it or not, in Ontario in, 20, uh, this, in 2019. Uh, the Liberals lost support just about everywhere else. They held some, their support in Quebec. They, they did lose some seats to the, the BQ. Uh, they lost a little bit in Atlantic Canada, got wiped out in Saskatchewan, wiped out in uh, Alberta, and they lost seats in D.C. 
so, uh, you know, surprise again for the Ontario strength, and I'm really chalking that up, I think, a large degree to the Ford factor. And now we have uh, some national, a national unity problem, and it comes in two flavors. One flavor is a good old-fashioned one, that is the threat of Quebec nationalism, separatism. It's a bit muted right now, but we got 30-plus uh, Bloc Québécois MPs coming back, and they do hold the balance of power. They're the second, uh, after the Conservatives, they're the next biggest group in Parliament. So that one we know, we've seen this movie before, and we're going to see it again. But now we've got another one. And uh, for those who know their geography, I want you to think about Winnipeg. Think about starting your car in downtown Winnipeg, mm-hmm. and I want you to drive west. You're going to go all the way across Manitoba, all the way across Saskatchewan, all the way across Alberta. You're going to hit those Rocky Mountains, and you're going to keep driving until you get to the edge of Vancouver. And that's when you'll see the next liberal seat after you left the liberal seat in Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. There's nothing, nothing liberal between Winnipeg and the outskirts of Vancouver. I don't know where Trudeau's going to get a cabinet minister from Alberta, a cabinet minister from Saskatchewan, but those two provinces account for a big chunk of our GDP, and the fact that they won't be represented at the table um, is a problem for Trudeau, and uh, it's probably a problem for those two provinces. In fact, uh, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, he's meeting with his caucus right now about it, and he'll be speaking uh, to reporters a little later this afternoon. How does the prime minister with a minority government juggle a pipeline? Yeah, that's going to be uh, going to be a question. He, he, Trudeau's not speaking to us today. He'll be giving a press conference up in Ottawa tomorrow. Jugmeet Singh, who doesn't like pipelines, has spoke to reporters already, and his line is not negotiating today. But we know where he stands. He's not interested in supporting the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Now, the interesting one there, I think, is the Bloc Québécois, and we'll see what goes on here. Uh, their leader, Yves-François Blanchet, um, basically his point was, I'm going to negotiate on a case-by-case basis. Uh, but what's in front of me, and, and all he'll be thinking about is Quebec. So in, in his view, or what I think we can read between the lines there is, you know, you guys want to spend some money to, you know, enlarge a pipeline out in B.C. and Alberta? Knock yourself out. Go ahead. No pipelines through Quebec, thank you very much, because they, too, are anti-pipelines in their province. So when it comes to a national energy corridor like Shear Plan, that wasn't going to happen in Quebec with uh, Blanchette. So in that sense, um, we might be able to see Trudeau work with, the BQ on some issues. And then don't forget this. I think it's important to point out, if there ever is a confidence vote involving the pipeline alone, well, Andrew Shear's conservatives are in favor of a pipeline, and one would assume they would do what the, they, they think in the national interest, which is vote with the government to support that pipeline. So, you know, that, that's just going to be one. The pipeline is going to be one of several issues. Uh, you know, how big is the deficit going to be? I mean, the NDP were planning on running up huge deficits. Uh, what about universal pharma care and how fast uh, will that come in? The uh, NDP wanted a very quick adoption of universal pharma care. Liberals are taking a go-slow approach. Um, and then there's the whole climate change policy generally, levels of carbon tax. Uh, there's a lot of things that uh, are on the table. Now, the one thing, though, that I think Trudeau, you know, he's probably a bit smart about this, the NDP's broke. The NDP borrowed heavily. They owe millions of dollars right now to the banks. Hmm. They borrowed heavily against property they own. They've got to repay that. Then they have to raise money for the next election. And Singh has not shown himself to be a very good fundraiser or organizer. Great campaigner, not a great organizer. And so I don't think the NDP will be in any rush to try to send us back to the polls. Um, th- so this could be a little more stable, this particular uh, minority parliament. What about the future of the leadership candidates? I think everybody's, uh, you know, I take the view that at this point in time, um, the only leader we may see a change sooner than later is Elizabeth May, and that's because she just wants to 
you know, she wants to pass the torch. I see all this talk about Andrew Shear and uh, questions about his leadership, but let's put things in context. First of all, he won the popular vote. Second, he got 20, 25 seats better than Stephen Harper in 2015. Third, only two men in our history have ever beaten a first-term prime minister. One guy was named John A. McDonald. The other guy was named William Lyon Mackenzie King. Hmm. Were we going to put Andrew Shear in that list with King and McDonald? That's a pretty high bar to take out a uh, first-term majority prime minister. That said, I do, and I'm hearing from conservatives who felt this was a layup. In, I'm using their word. This was a layup. We should have beat this guy. And, uh, and my sense is maybe it wasn't the leader necessarily, but the campaign strategy. Um, I'm really not sure why at, at any point this, the, the conservative campaign did not look like it was campaigning for the four or five percentage points of votes it needed to the left. It was looking like it thought Maxime Bernier and the People's Party were its biggest threat. Yeah. They were no threat at all. So I think when they do the debrief and think things through, uh, how do we get those voters in Burlington? How do we get those voters in Lisa Rates riding in Milton? To oddly enough, to oddly enough, David, these are the same questions they were asking themselves last election when they said they were going to look for a kinder, gentler conservative party. Well, yeah, but don't forget in other parts of the country they did have some success, a little mm-hmm. bit in Atlantic Canada and British Columbia. So, you know, I think that's, you know, I go back to the Ford factor, too. That will be absent next time around. And let's take a listen to what Andrew Scheer said last night in his speech. Remember, he got trumped by... Uh, Trudeau, who yeah. started speaking over top this year, but we replayed his speech yeah. uh, in full right after uh, right after Trudeau's. And, and what he said was, he looked back and said, "Listen, in 2004, Stephen Harper lost to the juggernaut Paul Martin. Paul Martin was supposed to be prime minister for decades and decades, and Martin held or Harper held Martin to a minority. And then in 2006, Harper beat Martin and would be the prime minister for a decade. That is Shear's line. It's not a bad line." Um, that uh, it's a two-step process. And again, I go back to the, the context that no one in history, except for John A. McDonald and Mackenzie King, hmm. had ever done what Shear was being asked to do. And when McDonald and King did it, they'd already been prime minister once. They were just coming back for a rematch. So did, you know, context is kind of important. So did Doug Ford cause Shear the election? Uh, I think there's, you could make that case. I know there are Ford Nation fans who believe that's nonsense, that Ford is a popular guy, and that uh, one of the mistakes Shear made is that Ford, uh, that Shear could have been seen with Doug Ford somewhere mm-hmm. in Ontario. I don't think that's true, but I'm just telling you that's what some Ford Nation fans think. Um, I do think Ford is unpopular, and um, and that was in the back of the minds of We know that from the, the exit polling. We did. That was in the back of voters. In fact, you could say that the reason... I think premiers played an outsized role in this. Um, in Saskatchewan and Alberta, where premiers Kenny and Scott Moe are tremendously popular, I mean, they campaigned against Trudeau, and the end result, uh, it's, it's a wipeout. They're, they're completely gone, liberals, from those two provinces. And where conservatives, conservatives were winning by like 85% in some ridings in Alberta. Hmm. Like you, that's is pretty much unanimous uh, in terms of our democracy. So they campaigned. Those were premiers campaigning in their provinces. And here it was really sheer trying to campaign to a degree against Ford, and he didn't find any success. How does this change the tone of Doug Ford moving forward, or does it? Well, again, if if there are Ford Nation fans and advisors saying, don't worry, Doug, this has nothing to do with you, you're still Mr. Popular, I'm not so sure that uh, Ford is being well served by his advisors in that particular case. 
Um, there's a long way yet to go in Doug Ford's mandate, um, but he should take a look at these results and go, hmm. Uh, and my interpretation, and you know, I don't think I'm alone in this, the Ontario election, remember, Patrick Brown was ready to beat Kathleen Wynne. Patrick Brown's popular support yeah. and polls just before he ended up quitting were higher than what Ford got on Election Day. I mean, and Brown was in favor of a carbon tax, in favor of the you know, sex ed education program, the, the point of the electorate's message in that, in that thing, it wasn't a vote for Doug Ford and his program. Yeah. It was, we want to get rid of Kathleen Wynne. End of story. That's it. And I think Ford has misinterpreted the uh, message from voters. It was not an endorsement of anything to do with the PC program. It was everything to do to say, we've had it with Kathleen Wynne, and the liberals want him out. David Aiken has been with us, Chief Political Correspondent, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. David, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Cheers. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's move on with all of this. How does the government, the minority transition play out? Let's bring in Professor Howard Ramos, Department of Sociology and Social Anthropology, Dalhousie University. He is with us now. Uh, Howard, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Your thoughts on how this campaign rolled out, uh, obviously, with the crossing the finish line last night. Well, it was a very ugly campaign, uh, fiercely fought, a lot of mudslinging, uh, a lot of uh, fear in terms of voting for the party that will give you the opposite of what you want. Uh, and you can see that even in the sort of concession speech, I, I say that kind of sort of concession speeches, uh, given that the tone of those were also quite uh, like the campaign. Uh, and so we, we find ourselves the next morning looking at all the parties that have had losses uh, in terms of what they were hoping to gain. Uh, we have an electorate that still is probably questioning uh, the choices that they have available to them. Uh, and we have huge regional differences uh, across Canada in terms of how people voted uh, and a need to try and tone this down and, and promote some humility. How do, especially in, because many were talking prior to the election, oh, you know what, a minority isn't so bad, you know, minorities, minorities can do this, positive this, positive that. Uh, That being said, I'm not sure it works with people that are parties that are as divided as they are, some saying that they won't even work with other parties. So what, how, how, what is the strength of this minority? What are your thoughts moving forward? Well, it's important to move past the hyperbole. There's uh, quite a bit of commonality across platforms uh, in places that people might be even surprised. There are things that the liberals and conservatives might agree upon in terms of pipelines. Uh, There's things that the NDP and the the liberals agree upon uh, in terms of pharmacare. There's environmental elements that uh, the liberals and the Greens can, uh, can agree with, as well as uh, the Bloc Québécois and, and the Liberals as well. So I think that there will be some ability to make things work. Uh, what will be really interesting is to see how long this will, will last. Usually minority governments, uh, at the best case scenario, last about two years uh, or just under. So uh, I'm guessing this, will, this government will be run issue by issue, depending upon where you need to gather support from, if you need to gather support from. But let's start with something that's pretty contentious, that being the pipeline. Where does, that leave the, where, where, where does this minority leave the pipeline in your thoughts? In my thoughts, the, you know, going forward, what will be really important is not to try and tackle the really contentious issues that are going to inflame regional differences. Uh, so I think that if the pipeline was to come through, uh, the Liberals, because of the, the weak uh, results they have in Western Canada, will feel pressure to try and uh, make this work. Uh, and they will pay a cost in terms of Ontario East. 
Um, but I don't expect that the Liberals are going to want to table a lot of the contentious things uh, right away. They're going to try and probably ease in on things that are, are more agreeable, things around affordability, uh, around health care issues, uh, around housing. Uh, what about unity in such what appears now uh, an even more so divided country? How does the prime minister bring the country together? He was quoted prior to the election uh, in a uh, in a campaign uh, Q and A where uh, one of the reporters asked him what his biggest regret was over the last four four years, and he said the divisiveness of the country that he wasn't he wasn't able to unite the country more. How does he do that moving forward, considering nothing in the West? And, uh, you know, we seem to have a, a more divisive country now. Or, or do we? Do you, th- do you think this is an opportunity to alleviate some of that divisiveness or does it dig it deeper? I think it's a huge opportunity to alleviate the, the divisiveness. And when I look at this minority result, what I see really happening is Canadians saying we don't like the extremes. If you look at Maxime Bernier and the People's Party, he didn't win a seat. They got uh, less than 1% of the vote. There's no room for this kind of politic uh, in the mainstream of, of political power to get power. Likewise, uh, for the Liberals, the loss of 20 seats shows that the kind of virtual, virtue signaling politics that some people are calling uh, the Trudeau government having is not working either. So it really, this result tells me that there's a need for the parties to really start looking at the middle and, and, and working on a positive politic rather than this negative campaigning. Because there's a lot of commonalities that we have across the regions that the vote's not reflecting. Howard, you bringing, you're bringing something up that we've talked about many times in the show prior to the election campaign, as well as all the way through it, and that is the centre. Where has the centre gone? Because it now seems we're using the, the extremes to identify most of these major parties. Uh, the Liberals constantly moving to the left to head off the NDP, yet the Conservatives don't seem to be moving towards the, the, the left or, or, or um, I guess, left of right, right of center, to, to take up that space. Where's the well, center gone? The, the center never disappeared, and, and this is what's the really annoying part of how politics have been practiced over the last 20 years. We've kind of adopted a sabermetrics approach or a micro-targeting approach uh, to politics where people were able to try and get a majority with their base of 30, 35% of the vote, plus an additional 5%. So it's micro-targeting on specific issues that have got us to where we, we've gotten. But there are super majorities of agreement on issues of affordability around environment, around health care, that can really be built upon. So those never went away. So are you predicting, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but do you see uh, a minority bringing us closer to the center? Uh, it's hard to tell at this point. Uh, certainly, I think that uh, if you look at the decrease in the vote share in this last election, uh, negative campaigning and fear didn't increase the vote, and it didn't lead to a result for any of the main parties that they would have desired. Uh, so if you were logical, uh, it would say that we should try and move more to the center uh, across the, the spectrum. But uh, logic and politics don't always go hand in hand. Uh, we just had this discussion last segment uh, w- with a conservative pundit, and, and my question to him was, uh, it appears that this party just hasn't, uh, hasn't modernized. It, it feels like it's your grandfather's party. It feels like it's a party of, uh, of the extreme right, even though it, it, it isn't necessarily. And they don't seem to be doing much to sell that. It's, it's like people are scared of this party. How, how do they change that? Well, it's important to remember that it's actually not the grandfather party, in, in the sense that the grandfather's party would have had a progressive conservative party. It was more center-right uh, than alt-right. 
Uh, and it's also important not to forget that about uh, a third of young voters actually do support the Conservatives. So it's a bit of a myth to say that young voters don't support the Conservatives. Why uh, do but, they seem to be painted as the ogre all the time? They all, it's always the, they're always compared to the alt-right. It's, it's always, um, you know, it's always a scare tactic sort of thing. Is that, is that the opposition doing a great job or, or the right not doing a very good job? Well, just like all stereotypes, there's a little bit of truth behind the stereotype, and it's an exaggeration that if you look at the, the, the support or the base, it's largely older men, uh, largely rural voters and, and uh, dominant or white uh, voters. Uh, and so that does make up the good chunk of their supporters. However, it's not to say that they don't have supporters uh, amongst the youth, and, and it would be misleading to say that uh, this is the politics of the old Tory conservatives that were progressive conservatives, because it's by no means anywhere close. Somebody like Brian Mulroney would not fit in the current conservative movement. Uh, again, where's Brian Mulroney, though? It seems like that's uh, a lifetime away from now. Well, it certainly is. Uh, that kind of politics seems to have disappeared, and this is a time for the Conservatives, if they want to vie for power and move outside their base of 30 to 35 percent of the vote, to, to begin to be honest with themselves and recognize that they've lost that uh, center or, or broader coalition that got them to power in the past. Uh, and likewise, for the Liberals, it's important for them to also take stock as well and recognize that they lost their bridge to creating an umbrella, and they've painted themselves in a corner. Uh, and, and it's time for the parties to really look at the reality that most Canadians are more center than uh, the current political discourse seems to, to indicate. Uh, how much did the Doug Ford factor play in this election? Uh, it's hard to say specifically how much the Doug Ford factor ha- uh, played in the election, but it, it certainly was something that was present. Uh, and it, it largely uh, probably shaped the vote in the 905 region and, and around the GTA. And if you look at Ontario, uh, most of the cities went uh, Liberal or NDP. Uh, and this is, again, another thing that uh, Conservatives have to take into consideration if they want to vie for power. And also something that the Liberals have to take into consideration as well if they want to move outside of their base. Joining us has been Professor Howard Ramos, Department of Sociology and Social Anthropology, Dalhousie University. Howard, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm not sure uh, about the opposition and how strong it was to overtake uh, the prime minister, especially when it comes to things to blackface, SNC-Lavalin, the ethics violations, uh, electoral reform, all that sort of stuff. Uh, Despite all of that, uh, again, walks into uh, a minority government, which I believe says more about the opposition than it does uh, about the uh, prime minister. That being said, uh, separatist sentiment is rising in Western Canada with the election of a minority government. Here's what the prime minister had to say last night. You are sending our Liberal team back to work, back to Ottawa with a clear mandate. We will make life more affordable. We will continue to fight climate change. We will get guns off our streets and we will keep investing in Canadians. All right, then let's bring in Peter uh, Peter Downing, Wexit Canada founder. A separatist sediment is rising in Western Canada, and uh, this is one of the groups that's uh, rallying the message that Alberta and Western Canada needs to be heard. Peter is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, thanks for having me. Tell us about uh, Wexit Canada. Tell us about this organization. Well, it's it's interesting. Uh, I just heard the clip where Andrew Scheer said that uh, when the government falls, and it will fall within the next 18 months, that the Conservatives are are going to uh, be ready. Well, 
I'm going to tell you something, is that with uh, Wexit Canada, we, we are tired of the electoral dynamics in this country right now at the federal level where you have a, Ontario with 121 seats, you've got Quebec with 78, and you've got uh, Alberta, where I live, with 34. I mean, Toronto and Montreal alone outvote us. We're flipping that dynamic. We're sending separatist uh, candidates to Ottawa. It's now going to be Ontario, 121 seats. It's going to be Western Canada, 104. We're pushing Quebec into uh, third spot with their 78 seats. There is never going to be, if you look at the results of the Reform Party in the 80s and the 90s, they mopped the floor in Western Canada. There's even more of an appetite now across the four Western provinces. Um, I think uh, uh, Angus Reid reported 35% of people would vote for a Western Canadian party if it existed right now. There is never going to be another conservative government in Canada. Western Canada is going to separate, and Alberta is going to be the first one that separates. Justin Trudeau is going to have the legacy. He talks about guns. He's done nothing to get... I was a policeman for nine years. He's done nothing to get real firearms out of the hands of real criminals. He's targeting lawful firearms owners. Our biggest supporters are firearms owners in Western Canada. Justin Trudeau is going to have the legacy of being the prime minister who lost Western Canada, and Alberta's the first one to go from Confederation. Uh, you said the Conservatives won't win the next election. What are the Conservatives missing? What's happening here? Well, the Conservative—I mean, I'm, I'm saying this again. The, the Conservative Party of Canada will never win. They will never form government ever again in Canada because we are doing our, our federal block while we're advancing things provincially to get a referendum on separation in each province of Alberta starting first. The Western provinces are going to separate. Alberta will be the first one. Um, what, the, what the Conservative Party is missing is that they have to deal with the, the reality of electoral politics in Canada. The reality is, is that West Conservative Party, they can be, they can be uh, sympathetic to Western Canadian problems like the hundreds of thousands of people out of jobs right now, um, while uh, regulations will C69, C48, a carbon tax we're going to get hit with again. That's going to be leveling small, small and medium-sized producers, um, oil field producers in Alberta. Um, they have to, to get power, they have to pander to Ontario and Quebec. Andrew Shearer, I think, only set foot in our province twice um, during the election campaign. The reality is they can be as sympathetic as they want, but they have to keep moving further left and left and left. The Conservative Party of Canada is a center-left party now. They are. There's not much that's actually conservative. Wow, that's amazing. They're driving towards progress. They're driving towards. This is our perspective. Yeah. They're no, I, I, towards, I understand they're that. Driving towards progressivism. Hang on, hang on, hang on, limit. hang on. I don't want to yell over top of you here. Uh, it's interesting you should say that because that's obviously a Western perspective. My perspective from Ontario is that they're not. They're they're too far to the extreme and painting themselves as scary. I mean, they're always the big bad conservatives. It's the extreme right. It's the alt right. Uh, Doug Ford, a factor in this election. People scared of him, therefore, and Trudeau capitalized on that. So, again, I, I don't see the Conservatives. I think the problem is there's nobody in the centre representing the centre anymore. But it's interesting that your perspective is, is that the Conservatives have moved too far to the left because I think people in Ontario think that, uh, you know, that he's, it's too extreme. What we have here is extreme politics on the left and the right and nobody in the centre. That's not the feeling here, but it's interesting that a different perspective uh, from the West. Your thoughts on that? Well, the, the reality is, is it doesn't matter what we think. It only matters what you think in Ontario because you have 121 seats. Hmm. And why do, why, why do we want to allow ourselves the risk of having our industry to be continually vulnerable, continually decimated, 
you know, moms and dads continually out of work. For every point of unemployment that we have here, 16 more suicides in Alberta. Yeah. So why do we want to hinge on, you know, the politics of Ontario and Doug Ford? We don't care about Doug Ford. Uh, how strong is this movement? How is Alberta feeling today? Well, it's huge. We were at 2,000. On what, we have a number of Facebook groups and pages and websites. One of them is uh, com, which was at 2,000. As Facebook group, it was at 2,000 before the election result came in. Uh, we're at over 100. We're at about 140,000 right now. Um, our donations have skyrocketed, and these are just the regular membership sales. And you know, the ten, twenty dollars here and there. Um, I think we've cleared. I think twenty thousand dollars today. Um, and that's, that's not even the donations that are coming in from business people, men and women across the province in oil and gas and agriculture in different industries saying we cannot, literally, we cannot survive another Trudeau government. Yeah. So we, we are doing everything within, you know, we're doing everything that we need to do to put the pressure on the Premier of Alberta to hold a referendum on separation. Otherwise, he's going to lose. If, he, if he's using Alberta as a stepping stone to be the Prime Minister of Canada, Albertans are just going to use him as a stepping stone to get their independence. So your thought, uh, your thoughts on Andrew Scheer's leadership during this campaign, on the campaign that he ran? You know, I met Andrew Scheer once or twice in person. Really, really, really decent guy. Uh, the reality is, is that he has to be weak on Western Canadian issues just for the same reason you said, because he would be perceived as too far to the right. The reality is, is that any federal... I don't think, I don't think the energy issues are, uh, you know, again, I, I think we're, we're painting a left and right issue here on the pipeline. And, I, you know, I, I think you're going to see the, a lot of Canadians supporting the pipeline. I don't think, I don't think that they've come too far left, meaning that they're, they're not fighting hard for pipelines. I, I just think that there's a, I think there's a personality crisis here. I think there's an identity no, crisis. I don't, think they're, I don't think they're conveying their message to Canadians. I, I, dis, I disagree with you. Yeah. The pipeline is one part of the economic spectrum, but the other side of it, whether it be the Conservatives signing on to the 2015 Paris Accord, right. did, did they, did they, what did they say that they're going to do on, Bill C, on, on those regulations? Are they calling carbon tax what we're calling it, a scam, a hoax, basically the redistribution of wealth that has nothing to do with the environment? Conservatives can't say that because too many people in Ontario, Quebec obviously, but too many people in Ontario believe that climate message mm. do you think the uh um uh, where do you see this going where do you see this in a couple of years well we're going to get a referendum on separation and i expect as people are losing more and more jobs and there's going to be more capital flight from alberta and from western canada generally um you're you're going to see a successful yeah just like you saw the quiet revolution in the 1960s with mm-hmm. um what prompted Quebec independence and nationalism, you're going to see the exact same thing here. The only difference here, it's going to happen quicker because we've learned the lessons from the Quebec separatists, plus the successful campaign tools and strategies of American campaigns and politicians as well. Is electoral reform, uh, is, is, is that a solution here? It would be a solution. An equal elected and effective Senate would be a solution because Alberta only has six senators for a population of 4.3 million people, whereas you got Nova Scotia and New Brunswick who have 10 senators each for populations less than a million people each. But the reality is we had a prime minister for nine years, Stephen Harper from Calgary, yeah. who campaigned on an equal elective and effective Senate, and he failed. And the reality is, is that Canada historically has been a political and economic pact between Ontario, who wanted to protect 
their political and economic privilege in Quebec, who wanted to protect the, and protect their their religious, cultural, and language privileges. East Atlantic Canada was forced into the deal by the British, who wanted to dump their defense um, responsibilities, and the West wasn't even there. We're just the piggy bank of resources that folks in eastern Canada want to take it at a steep discount and to be able to sell the manufactured goods back to us at full pop. Peter Downing has been with us, Wexit Canada. Peter, people want to find out more. Where can we go? Um, our website's very, very slow. Be patient with us. It's um, just huge traffic. But Wexit, uh, WexitAlberta.com is uh, our main website. Um, we have WexitCanada.com as well, um, where you can check out uh, for the federal uh, separatist operations. Um, you can follow my Facebook page, which is just Peter Downing, a political page on Facebook, or my Twitter, uh, Peter Downing. Uh, sorry, Peter Downing AB on Twitter, and we have WexitEvents.com. We run events and rallies, Wexit rallies every two weeks in Alberta. Peter Downing has been with us, founder of Wexit Canada. Peter, good luck with all this. Uh, hopefully, sooner or later, the West, uh, the West's uh, message will be heard to the rest of Canada. Thanks for the time. Hey, thank you. Good talking to you. It is 146. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. You know, that makes me sad. I spent three years out west and in Calgary during the Olympics and such. And, you know, what a great place. I've been, I've been from coast to coast. And it's sad that we can't listen to our neighbors enough to stop them from separating. I mean, we certainly do Quebec, but what about everything else? My goodness. We pander to one, but not the other, it appears. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, we were talking about this earlier on in the day, and it's hard to believe that it was five years ago today that Corporal Nathan Cirillo was killed while on duty, standing guard at the National War Memorial by a lone gunman in Ottawa. To talk more about all of this, Major Carlo Titarelli is with us, uh, Deputy Commanding Officer of the Argyle, uh, Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders, and he's in studio with us now. Uh, Carlo, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. It's, my pleasure. it's hard to believe, and we were discussing this as you walked in, it's been five years since, since this event happened. The time has passed quickly. It was um, interesting. I was talking to one of, or speaking to one of my colleagues about it, and, uh, and, and you know, both of us were in shock about how two, five years have, have passed uh, since, since his uh, death. We all remember uh, how the community, uh, how the country rallied around uh, this memorial, and, and specifically uh, Corporal Cirillo's son, Marcus, and, and him in the procession and wearing the hat. How's the family? I know we don't get, get too personal about all of this. They, they need their privacy, but how's the family? How's Marcus? Everybody doing? I've only seen him uh, on on a few occasions since mm-hmm. uh, and recently, and and he looks well and 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 is doing well from all what I understand. So, what does this day mean to the regiment? What does this mean when this day comes around? Well, it, it's an interesting time because the soldiers uh, will be uh, discussing it. Uh, tomorrow's our parade night, so we'll be in and we'll host a, a private ceremony with uh, with the soldiers, and we'll have a small parade with a moment of silence, uh, and and that's what they'll how they they will mark it. Um, it's something that they'll uh, discuss on an ongoing basis, and and uh, we were away on an exercise over the weekend, and it came up uh, on many occasions amongst the soldiers as they were chatting. Uh, so obviously they're aware of the anniversary. Um, h- how do they deal with that? You said there's a private service uh, at their armory for for the soldiers and such. Uh, did they discuss what they wanted to do, how they wanted to mark this occasion? Um, I think most of the soldiers, um, uh, you know, have 
I think all of the soldiers have been very grateful for the outpouring of support from both, you know, at the national level or provincial level, mm. and even the local level. Um, you know, it was it was outstanding to see the the procession, the Highway of Heroes, mm. um, you know, procession. Coincidentally, I was speaking with my client that I had this morning in my right. civilian job about right. what today was, and and she made a comment about how she stood for the Highway of Heroes and how she had never seen anything like that, and that was just. The, woman I was dealing with today and mm. um, so I, I think all the soldiers do genuinely appreciate all the the outstanding support we've had and uh, from from again the federal to provincial to local level uh, and from all, um, from are, all the are you surprised this still resonates with people uh, you know what no I'm not surprised uh, considering how um, how symbolic it was when you consider that he's at the at the National War Memorial and, and mm. then you know conducting his duties when when he's killed uh, people just don't expect this. Uh, if you're going over to uh, serve a war uh, area, a war-torn area, if you're going on a mission, that's a different story. But talk about the opportunity to go and stand at the war memorial and what that means to a soldier. You know, what the when we call for volunteers, what they do is they... they um, they allow all the units to take a turn guarding the war memorial and when we call for our volunteers to go uh, it's a sought after task and, yeah. the, and the soldiers everybody do wants to go yeah. yeah and um you know and i know personally i've had the opportunity to march in the remembrance day parade uh in front of the national war memorial mm. when when i was in my undergraduate in ottawa so i've you know i've had yeah. not not the same experience as corporal cirillo but a similar one and it's a it's a very proud moment in any soldier's career to be to be asked to do that and you're just not expecting this sort of thing in this honorary position which makes this even so m- much more difficult to, to comprehend yeah it, it was uh, it was it was shocking for for everybody involved and, and totally unexpected uh, I mean we've had a, a lot of soldiers overseas and and in that context if you yeah. got the call you would expect it but this one was was very different and I and I have a personal recollection of when I got the call from the commanding officer about what had happened, I was just sitting down to lunch and about to eat my first bite. And, and then I, you know, ate one bite and said to the guy I was having lunch with, we got to go back to the office. I got to go down to the armories and uh, taking a moment to process it. How do soldiers feel now when they get to have the same honor that Corporal Cirillo did? I mean, it must mean even more to stand there now. You know, I, I think there's no hesitation for the soldiers to volunteer to, to do the job, um, and I think they would take a great amount of personal pride in being selected to do it. Uh, so as time goes by, what do you want Hamiltonians, Canadians, Ontarians to remember? How, how do you want them to observe this day? That's, a, that's a, maybe a complicated question. I mean... Uh, the unit, the way we observe this day and the way we honor uh, Corporal Cirillo's memory is in our continued service and our continued uh, thoughts and, mm. and, and we think about his, uh, his family and, and the sacrifices he's made. Um, I think the, you know, the average uh, citizen in the community, I think just reflecting upon it and remembering uh, his personal sacrifice as well as all the sacrifices of other soldiers and in particular as we as we enter into the remembrance day season um is the most appropriate way to to acknowledge the sacrifice there you go yeah remembrance day just around the corner um what's it like to be in argyle this is an incredibly historic uh regiment i mean the queen uh very much involved when corporal cirillo passed 
what's that like? Uh, you know, I, I get chills <laughs> just even thinking about it, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, every soldier's proud of their regiment. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, whatever regiment you serve with, you're sure. always happy. And, and, you know, and maybe I'm lucky because I get to be in the Argyle, so I get to be yeah. you know, a little more proud and a little more, um, it, it's it's fantastic. Uh, you know, it's a great bunch of guys. Uh, we When it comes to both ceremonial activities, we, we can put on a lot of soldiers on parade and it's memorable. And then the other side is when we talk about operations, you know, we're one of the units that puts the most guys out yeah, yeah. Um, for overseas operations, for domestic operations and, and um, you know, recent flooding in... Um, yeah in, yeah, in the east, and what would you say to a young person who's thinking about embarking down this road? Uh, you know what the army is a is a the army and military as a whole has been a great experience, and I've enjoyed it. And I've been a reservist my entire career, and I've had the the privilege of you know serving with different units. And whenever I went away to university for my undergrad or or for my professional designation, I've always had a job waiting. Um, is it difficult to do that, to balance those two worlds? Uh, no, because the Army is built, or the Reserve Army is built for students. Right. So your training takes place in the summer, and then your uh, training on the weekends or during the year takes place in the weekends and in the evenings. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and I've gone through you know, two degrees on it and, and enjoyed it. And they provide uh, subsidies and, and pay, and you're making it's a good job uh, for it. It's what, a lot of fun. What t- <laughs> that's it. What makes it fun? Um, you know what? It's just a, the different challenges you get. It's it's a job like you will never have any other. And yeah. um, one, what does it bring to your private life, your professional life? Well, um, you know, uh, depending on what rank level you are, you, you're mm-hmm. faced with different tasks and yep. challenges. And so, uh, as you advance in rank, you you have less you know sort of tactical uh, tasks, and you have more administrative and management yep. and planning tasks, and and you have years and years of training and and um, and courses they fund for you, and and it's all paid while you do it. Mm-hmm. So, what type of person signs up? You know, that's a again a really interesting question because. It's a really diverse uh, group of people we mm-hmm. have. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, both men and women join, and and uh, men and women, people of different backgrounds and and ethnicities. Now, um, it's not. Uh, it, it's a very, I think, a very strong representation of the city people you'll have in the city. Mm. As we move forward to Remembrance Day, I remember there was a time when it didn't seem to have the impact that it does now. And then prior to that, lots of impact off of World War II. It seems to be we have much more of an appreciation for this now. You know what? I, I tend to agree with you. And, and the reason why is, you know, we had the conflict in Afghanistan mm-hmm. in particular. And um, people are now accustomed to, you know, or had, had been exposed to to sacrifice. And, mm-hmm. you know, we'd sort of lost that uh, approaching the Afghanistan yeah. conflict because it's been so long and, you know, people's memories fade and, yep. you know, the elderly don't, are the ones, only ones who remember. And yeah. then now it, it's more in our, in our consciousness as a younger group. And um, it'll be interesting to see as we now are out of the Afghan mission, how that continues on into the future. What is the response like when the young soldiers are out in public? What is the response from the public now? You know what? We have had the uh, a great response from the average uh, mm-hmm. person on the street. And, you know, if I'm out in uniform and I'm talking to people, they're always really happy to see you. They, you know, mm-hmm. they've got questions. And, and I always tell people in the public, don't hesitate to speak to the soldiers. They'll talk to you and yeah. you know, ask them what it's like and what their experiences are. And they'll be happy to chat with you. 
I mean, it's been, uh, you know, it's, it's always a really positive experience. Major Carlo Tinarelli has been with us. He is a deputy commanding officer, Argyle and Southern Highlanders. Uh, and today, marking a sad anniversary, the fifth anniversary of Corporal Nathan Cirillo, killed while on duty, standing on guard at the National War Memorial by a lone gunman. Our condolences, our thoughts, and most importantly, our thanks to everybody there. And, uh, and our thoughts are with you as you travel through this day. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thanks very much, Carlo. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.